Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast. As always, with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. How are you this week, Paddy? Absolutely fantastic today, Gary. I'm watching my garden outside, and it is pissing rain, but the sun is still out because we live in Ireland. Anyway, mm. what are we discussing today? Yeah, so this week's topic is definitely... Um, a more kind of meta topic that is related to how we think about standards of evidence, you could say, um, but particularly applied to personal training um, and also the information that's kind of put out in the health and fitness space in general. Because one of the things that I've come across um, is is the fact that people really do struggle to uh, decide who is reliable and who is not reliable when they're deciding whether or not they should follow people. And for some reason, people tend to ask me or us fairly regularly, hey, what do you think of this person's content? Uh, Or what do you think of this person's content? Or what we might see is people will tag us in some sort of story and say, oh, these people are the best to follow. And it will be us. And then maybe some other people who were kind of like, God, like I don't, I don't know if 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 our content very much aligns with what what they're saying at all, um, and, and those sorts of things. So from seeing that kind of discrepancy in terms of how people uh, assess the reliability of information, and from kind of my own observation in terms of the way that different uh, people online put out information, uh, the different standards of evidence that they have, we wanted to kind of tease out some of the details there. So that all sounds quite vague, but basically earlier in the week, I made a post on my personal Instagram and it kind of, it was titled navigating the evidence-based or science-based spectrum. And the reason I call it a spectrum is because different people have different standards for what they consider to be science-based. And while we like to think that, oh, science is science, and, you know, this is what the science says. And, you know, I recently heard a doctor say, the facts are the facts, and these are what the facts are. It's ac- it actually runs a lot deeper than that, because fundamentally, people have different philosophies for the type of information that they consider to be reliable. And you can certainly argue that there is a hierarchy there. And one of the big kind of uh, the way that I would dichotomize this, if you think of the two ends of the spectrum, would be uh, the conservative person and the liberal person. And they're not the, the terms as used in American politics. They're kind of related, you could say. But the conservative individual, when they're encountering uh, scientific information or evidence or they're on PubMed looking for research papers, they're unlikely to come to a conclusion or, or a decision made unless there's rigorous um, evidence. So generally, you're looking at multiple studies or at least really well-designed studies um, that demonstrate efficacy. So efficacy being the intervention works in and in an ideal research-based setting and effectiveness that the intervention works in kind of a real world setting. So in practice, pretty much. So they're unlikely to run forward with an intervention unless we have that evidence to say that this actually works in real people in the real world. That's what they're looking for. That's what the conservative is looking for because they're not going to run and try to change things unless they have evidence to show that there is merit to doing so. However, the more liberal individual they might look at science and evidence and say that, oh, look, based on, let's say, this metabolic pathway or something, 
uh, it seems like this intervention might be helpful. So what they're doing is they're looking at, they're looking for plausible mechanisms that would make something useful um, without direct observable evidence like the other individual, the conservative who wants like rigorous evidence in the real world. So they're kind of willing to say that this might work based on these mechanisms. So I'm going to go ahead and make that decision. And as we kind of reflect on those two different ends of the spectrum, what I want you to note is that neither is inherently better than the other, because there are certainly case, there are cases where you want uh, the conservative to be making most of the decisions. You want to be quite conservative when you're making public health policy, let's say, in a lot of cases, okay, because you want to be able to say to people that if you put these interventions into practice, I'm very confident that this will have a meaningful effect. You're not just saying, oh yeah, here, everyone in the population, eat this specific food because it would kind of maybe make sense based on physiology or biochemistry that this might be healthful. We want more rigorous evidence than that. However, there are actually examples, even at the level of public health, where you actually might want someone to be a little bit more liberal. And an example of that would be COVID-19. A lot of the public health policy related to COVID-19 has been like so much it, it there's uncertainty baked into the cake you know no one can no one could say for sure you know what will uh, universal mask wearing in the irish population how will that affect viral transmission no one can exactly predict how that will affect things in advance but in that case what you do is you say okay what are the benefits and what are the harms or potential benefits and potential harms and if there are potential benefits in the absence of significant potential harms then it's easier to go ahead and make that decision without the rigorous evidence that you might have for other interventions. So you can see there that because there's an asymmetry um, between the benefits and harms, it's easier to make that decision. However, if it was a drug, you wouldn't just put a drug or a vaccine. I like the vaccine is probably the best example. You wouldn't put a vaccine out into the population because, oh, it makes sense that this might be safe. Because very clearly, we, have, uh, we would anticipate that there would be greater potential harms to an untested drug than there would be to a face mask. So even in just looking at those examples, you can start to see that just simply looking at a research paper um, or you see people online sharing research papers, that's not enough to actually help with decision making because we need to try to think about what level of evidence do I actually need to make this decision in the real world? Because if you're a personal trainer, let's say, and you're just focused on exercise, you can make exercise decisions for the purpose of enjoyment and for the purpose of adherence without having to justify it with a particular research paper. And that's actually one of the traps that I think people fall into when they start to brand themselves as being uh, quote unquote evidence-based. They try to make every decision based on a specific research paper. And that actually just misses the point here of what evidence we need for different decisions. Because I would argue that while you might want some evidence to inform your exercise programming, like things like basic training principles and what leads to different adaptations, et cetera, you don't actually need an exercise or a specific research paper to decide between a dumbbell bench press and a barbell bench press or a squat or a leg press. We don't need research papers for that because you can actually make decisions in the real world and say, you know, what, what does your client enjoy more? You know, what's actually going to lead to adherence long-term? What feels better for them? Is one exercise causing more or less pain? And that's ultimately where 
things like personal preferences um, and practical concerns in the real world start to mesh together with the evidence that we have available to influence your decision making. So, so there's some kind of opening thoughts. Does that make sense, Paddy? Are we clear? hundred percent. And also like just putting it into most people's everyday setting. Now I know obviously most people who listen to this are probably already into their health and fitness. So they may work in, you know, the health and fitness field, personal trainers, nutritionists, whatever else. Right. But I also know quite a few people who are just like office workers and stuff that listen yeah. to the podcast. They just want to, you know, keep up to date with the, the health and fitness stuff. You know, they, they like that stuff. Right. And in an, off, in an office setting, it's actually a little bit easier to see this because it, it goes across pretty much any career you could could think of right there's the conservative approach to that job or task that needs to be done and then there's that more liberal approach to it and again it doesn't mean like in some in certain circumstances one approach is more favorable than another and i'll give a few examples so like the conservative approach you go into a job and they're like we do it like this because this is the way it's always been done and we know the job gets done then you know so this is the this is the, the standard operating procedure do this, then this, then this, right? So that's the conservative person. They're like, this, this. We've always done it like this. Why would we change? You know. And then you come in, and maybe you're, you know, younger, twenty years younger than the rest of the people in there, and you're like, well, we could actually do it like this because we have this technology available to us, and we have this, this, and this that we could do, and it would shave off twenty minutes from the job and make it easier for everyone, you know. And and that would be a more liberal approach where they're like. Um, can we experiment a little bit like do we have a little bit of leeway with this can we actually go out on a limb and change a few things up you know i might be wrong but can we can we try you know um i think most people will be familiar with that and again just from you know living your own life you'll see that sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't you know and an example of that would be you know maybe you work in i don't know an electricity plant you know and you go oh, well we do it like this and it's always been done like this and it's always left the electricity running so can we just have a little bit more of a liberal approach to this and you know, maybe tweak this and maybe do this? And all of a sudden the power is out for half the fucking country, you know? Like maybe being conservative there would have been the better approach, right? And obviously, in, as Gary said, in certain fields, this is more prevalent because it's it, the, 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 the things that can go wrong are more serious in a, a more immediate way. Uh, point you know a more immediate time frame right you know obviously your power going out if you work in a hospital and you know that's that's probably not exactly great maybe i presume they have backup generators you would want you know <laughs> and so like obviously there is a immediacy to that but if you're again like i said in some sort of drug trial or prescribing drugs to a patient you don't want to be like you know what i was actually reading this paper and there was this very small mechanism that i've no idea like the magnitude of effect but it seemed to make sense so you know we have this standard operating procedure of like give you this drug and this drug i don't know maybe it's for h pylori or something you're like oh we, we generally give triple therapy right this is the one we do but, but you know what i've actually been reading about you know the effects of h pylori on this other thing so i'm actually going to give you this trial drug and i'm just going to prescribe it we'll see how you get on with it you know and it's like that's that would be a reckless approach you know and and could potentially lead to harm you know, uh, the classic example that they always give with like drugs that lead to harm is thalidomide when they gave it for nausea to pregnant women and it led to birth defects, you know, and that's if someone was more conservative in their approach, they were like, mm, maybe we shouldn't use this drug for this side effect of pregnancy, let's say nausea, and um, because then you get the side effect of birth defects, 
you know? And obviously they didn't know that ahead of time. Otherwise, well, you would hope they didn't know that ahead of time or some people were fucked up. Um, but, you know, being more conservative in your approach there probably would have been a better idea than being a little bit more liberal and going like, yeah, it actually seems to work for this. And um, we don't really know the longer term consequences of this. You know, it hasn't been as robustly tested as stuff is drugs are now. And um, let's go with it, you know? So for a coaching perspective or, you know, your own health and fitness journey, you know, there are times when being more conservative makes sense. And there's times when being more liberal with what you do makes sense. A really good example is a lot of the, the stuff that we do with resistance training actually has no evidence base, none whatsoever. There's no evidence base that would suggest that squats are the best exercise for legs, right? And that's not to say that they're a bad exercise, but it's purely convention, purely conservative. Like if you make that decision, you go, oh, I'm evidence-based. Please show me the evidence, right? If you go squats are the best exercise, like, please, I, I actually, I'm intrigued. I love squats, you know? So I'd be like, yes, fuck, I have evidence for this, but there's none. And it purely because of the way resistance training evolved, you know? Like if we didn't create barbells, no one would be saying that squats are the best exercise. We'd have something else. Like if machines came first, you know? We'd be like, well, Jesus, I use the hack squat machine. I don't use that fucking barbell. That's disgusting, you know? Um, so it, there's like a lot of the stuff that people say they're evidence-based with is just, there's very little evidence to suggest that that's like, there, there's pretty much no evidence, right? Yeah. Um, and they're just purely going on convention or that conservative philosophy of like, well, squats have always worked for everyone. What, why would I do something different? You know, whereas again, the more liberal person might be like, all right, well, you know, squats are a good exercise, but uh, based on the, you know, how the quads work and, you know, I'm looking at these, like, the, the anatomy and the, the biomechanics, especially of this individual in front of me, you know, I actually think a leg press is going to be way more effective for you. You just tip forward in your squat, you feel it all on your low back and yeah, it's working the quads even in, in that circumstance. You know, if we can just get rid of that limiting factor and we can actually start taxing the legs, Oh, we actually have a better quad stimulus, which is what we're trying to do here, you know? And let's try leg press instead of that, you know? And that's the more liberal approach to it. So you can see there's, there is no right and wrong with this stuff. There is a, a right and wrong in the circumstance, potentially, you know, especially if it is, you know, the a drug trial. <laughs> um, or like I said earlier on, public health policy, you know, you want to be more conservative. You don't want to be like, yeah, how confident, like someone asks you how confident you are in this approach, you're like 50%, you know, I, I think it might work for people, you know, like you don't want that in a public health approach where you're giving information to the vast majority of people. You, like you don't want that because again, all that becomes then is the conservative approach going forward, you know, and that does influence both the results people get, you know, if you make, I don't know, recommendations for, uh, health and fitness stuff in terms of nutrition, you're like, this is what we should do. Like that affects people's lives potentially for the rest of their life, you know? Um, and it also impacts on public, you know, policy going forward. Cause they're like, oh, well, you know, we'll subsidize this that grain production and we'll do this because we're actually trying to recommend this and it seems to be effective for this. You know, it, and it goes way down the rabbit hole. And then in 10 years time, you're like the conservative approach is an approach that is wrong and it's just conservative now because someone was a little bit more liberal with their their thinking earlier on it doesn't mean that it was the the best approach forever 
you know like i always look at it like uh you probably heard of like nuclear winter you know people are were really scared in you know the cold war era of nuclear winter there is literally so little evidence that nuclear winter would occur that you if you were following the evidence you'd be like what like what why would we think this right but our public policy is based on that for like they they, they did it basically you get a lot of soot in the air uh, or soot in the atmosphere and it they're like, oh, it would cause global warming, but they just don't factor in like such like black rain effectively, and then also all of the 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 models use like a spring or summer time approach, so that would be the most impactful. But you know, who's to say it would occur then? So there's a few different flaws with it. I'm not saying that like I'm I'm against nuclear winter having never occurred. You know, potentially there would be a, a a nuclear autumn that would potentially occur. But what I'm saying is, you know. Someone came up with that. They were a little bit more liberal. They were like, hmm, I'm actually against, you know, nuclear arms, nuclear proliferation, which, you know, that's your right to, to be against that. Um, and they came up with this, this theory. And they're like, oh, well, like, I think this makes sense. This is what would occur. Because obviously we don't know. It hasn't happened. So we're, we're coming up. We're like, let's, let's be a little bit more liberal. Let's be a little bit more creative, curious. Let's, let's think of some things that would happen, you know? And then that goes down. Like, I don't think there was malice or, you know, harm or anything in like intent in the, the, the thinking of it. But that then becomes the conservative approach. We're like, oh, Jesus, that's actually influencing our policies, how we think of things, how the public thinks of things. Um, and it's led to things like, you know, uh, we don't have nuclear power plants, you know, even though they are more uh, well, cost effective, we'll say, but also energy efficient. You know, and it's like that influences things going forward, you know, and obviously you're entitled to your own beliefs on that. I'm just going saying what I believe. Um, but, you know, it, it does have knock on effects going forward, having either a conservative or a liberal belief. And what, what's really like almost insidious about it is you can start with a liberal belief that goes against the norm and then that becomes the conservative. But that doesn't mean that that liberal belief was correct at the start, you know, like just changing, oh, we always do it this way, let's change it this way. That doesn't mean that it was the best way to do things. And then those knock-on effects, you're you're putting out fires that never needed to actually occur. And then uh, a new liberal belief, you know, they're they're challenging the, the status quo, maybe even goes back to what was previously done because ultimately it was more effective. Another good example would be, you know, uh, moving the dollar away from the gold standard. You know, a load of people are like, yeah, that's a great idea because you can effectively have unlimited credit, right? But that effectively also makes unlimited debt, right? Um, so we're in a situation where a lot of people argue that we should go back to the gold standard. You know, it made sense and we thought it was a good idea. But now we're like, mm, a lot of people, uh, not everyone, are like, oh, let's go back to the gold standard. Let's, we should be pegged to the gold, you know? Um, and again, that can happen. And you... As an individual, you shouldn't necessarily fight that. You know, and what I mean by that is you shouldn't necessarily fight that in your own belief system. Like maybe you did believe something about a dietary approach or a training approach or a health topic or whatever, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm going to be more curious. I think this pathway or I think this and maybe whatever this, like you could just be wrong, right? Even though you're trying to be curious, you know, and you're trying to figure things out and you're trying to see little uh, potholes and holes in the logic and whatever else um with that approach and you come up with this other thing it might be wrong right and this is unfortunately one of the things that happens in academia people are afraid to be wrong you know like they won't 
admit when they're wrong, you know, or they, if and you see this as well, especially in the health and fitness uh, field where people will effectively do something, propagate a lie or a myth or whatever, and then it'll be disproven. And they'll effectively just slowly distance themselves from ever having said that, even though like they built their name on it or they have multiple videos and articles and whatever else on that topic. And you're like, anyone who's looking at this can see that you used to believe X and now you don't. And now you're pretending that you didn't change your, your beliefs on that, you know, or that your beliefs were different in the past, you know, in terms of like, you're like, Oh, I didn't actually believe that. Even though these words that you're reading from this article that I wrote say that, you know, and like, it's okay. You can be wrong. Like anyone can be wrong. It's perfectly fine. You know, and like, obviously we want to maximize the rightness <laughs> that we are, but it happens, you know, you can be like, you, you have to be able to push that window. This is why people get tenure in, in like academia. So they know that their job is secure. They're not going to lose their job. So they can be a bit more curious. So before you have tenure as a professor or as a, an academia academic, you're going to be like, all right, I'm going to be very conservative. I know I'm not going to rock the boat. We're going to stay straight and narrow. Right. And now I have tenure. I'm pretty secure in my job. I can be a little bit more liberal. I can, you know, look for this approach and I can look for this approach and maybe put my, my neck on the, the chopping board a little bit here because I actually think this is right, you know? So again, you're, the way you navigate these things can change from liberal to conservative. Obviously not the, the, the political version of those things, um, but for, can change from liberal to conservative based on the situation in front of you. And then also based on, you know, what else is going on in your life and you know the, your your thought process with things again uh, uh, an example that most people can uh, really resonate with is earlier in their life you know they especially as a guy you might be like oh i really want to improve my body composition i want to build muscle and you're willing to try so many different things you're like oh it might might help right and um, but then as you get older and you're like, mm, maybe you should be thinking about my health and longevity a bit more. You know, I have kids now or I want to have kids or whatever. And you're like, mm, maybe like I shouldn't take that random supplement that's only been out for a week, yeah. you know? And um, I need to, I don't know, wait until I have, you know, more evidence that this is effective. You know, I'm going to waste my money on it, but I'm also not going to risk my health on some random supplement, you know? And um, so like you, through your lifespan, you can see how things change um, and I think being dogmatic with your approach and looking at other individuals and thinking like oh they are far too liberal for my liking in, in, in their approach right? I'm not saying their actual political beliefs <laughs> um, but in, in their approach you're like oh I don't like how they always are talking about this mechanism or that thing or whatever I, I don't like that right so I'm only going to follow these conservative people just remember that those conservative people that have this conservative approach, a lot of the time there's, there's very little evidence for that. And they're literally just doing what has always been done. And that doesn't mean that it's wrong, but that doesn't mean that it's the most effective or best approach to things. And you might find that every so often that person that has these way more liberal beliefs comes up with a little idea that, you know, all of a sudden, transfers over into the conservative and it's like, Oh, that's, yeah, we just always do that. Now it's, it makes sense, you know? And um, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I think you can, you can see some, some quite ex good examples of this um, in medicine in general, like how, how medical conservatism is kind of uh, 
been been encouraged is implemented and is becoming increasingly more popular over time because there's basically always a trade-off between like let's say like i i would say that the the conservative will basically end up uh coming up with more false negatives so they might basically miss out on interventions that could potentially be useful, you know? So for example, if I'm quite conservative in terms of the dietary prescriptions that I give to, to my, to the clients I work with, then there might actually be cases where I didn't make a decision to put them on maybe a keto diet, let's say that could have actually been really beneficial for them, but I'll only find out in future. So there was a potential, a potential for false, false negatives there. Um, Whereas the liberal, um, they're more likely to encounter false positives. So they're more likely to encounter uh, implementing interventions that turn out in the future to actually have been useless, you know. Um, and that's something that's actually not what you want in, in something like medicine, let's say, because you don't want to find out 10 years after or 20 years after that you actually just gave people loads of medicines all along that were actually turned out to be really harmful and you did so in the absence of evidence to support their efficacy, you can see where problems will start to arise then. And you see that in medicine with things like uh, screening tests as well. So the person who might be more um, liberal and, and is saying, hey, this kind of makes sense. Let's just go ahead and, and go for that. They might say, oh, why don't we just screen everyone for everything? You know, So why don't we all just get full body MRIs every single year to just make sure that nothing is going wrong. Um, whereas the more conservative individual would say, well, we don't actually have evidence that that improves uh, care for people. And if you, if you screen certain populations in some contexts, let's say cancers, um, cancers and elder, elderly individuals, let's say, sometimes if you're screening for those cancers, what can end up happening is the person actually ends up going, undertaking lots of investigations um, and potentially lots of treatment that doesn't actually impact their quality or quantity of life in the end, because it was unlikely to affect them before they died anyway. Um, so you can see how just doing more isn't always beneficial. And obviously, another quite popular medical example would be the multiple drugs that have been put forth for COVID-19 since the pandemic started. You know, you've probably seen lots of hyper-politicized discussions about different drugs and stuff like that. Um, and again, you see that battle there between the more conservative approach where we say, hold on, can we please wait until we have good randomized control trials before we go ahead with this? And individuals who are like, no, we need to get this stuff as soon as possible out to people. And there was even an article, I think, in the New York Times last week or the week before, where someone was making the case that we need to fast track the vaccines and get them out to people as soon as possible. Whereas the conservative answer to that would be, you know, if you're going to do that, can you imagine the backlash from conspiracy theorists and anti-vaccine people when they realize that a vaccine has been fast-tracked? And if there did happen to be harm associated with that because it wasn't rigorously tested, like that is a nightmare for public health and for medicine and for public trust in um, professionals or healthcare professionals in general. So you can see how there are these trade-offs. And as I was saying to Patty before, the, the podcast started, like you do actually want people who are more conservative in their thought process um, and people who are more liberal in their thought process. So if you were, to, if we were to create like some sort of research group for nutrition science, let's say you'd want people in the room who are going to say, hold, hold on a second, slow down, right? We have no evidence to support what you're saying. We have these trials that support this, this, and this. So where are you getting these ideas? And then you want the person across the room who's actually saying, 
hold on, look, right? If you look at, you know, if you look at the biochemistry of this molecule, it seems like this interacts with this receptor and it would make sense that this phytonutrient in this food could potentially affect that. I think it's worth at least trying to investigate. And, you know, they might go ahead and, and spur future research. And then there might be basic science evidence that prove, that supports the idea that, oh, this might potentially help in humans in the future. Whereas that actually has to go through multiple different steps to eventually lead to the conclusion that, oh, this actually helps people in the real world in foods as consumed. Um, and then the conservative individual might turn around and say, okay, you know, you, ac- you were actually right in this case. So let's move forward with that, you know? Um, so you do need that. Like another example would be something I reshared in my in- Instagram a couple of days ago it was basically this, just this kind of um, this genetic defect in, in, a, in a particular gene that leads to uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. And basically that, that gene from its discovery of its role 10 years ago, um, it took 10 years for it to translate into a drug that was proven in the real world to actually make a difference um, to these patients. So you actually need that 10 year period to be able to rigorously test it, to make sure it works in the real world without adverse effects. Because if you were overly liberal in that context, you could say, hold on, we've identified the problem in these people. Let's treat it immediately. And then you could end up with adverse effects. And that obviously wouldn't be um, what you want, especially if, if, if mass produced. So I think it should be pretty clear that, in a lot of cases with more with the medical side of things, you probably do want to be a bit more conservative, um, especially as you begin to factor in like economic considerations. Like for example, if you're working in a socialized healthcare system, you want to make sure that you are allocating your resources appropriately. Like if you're just going to screen everyone, let's say, and that's going to have huge costs on the healthcare system and it's not clear that it's making care better, then that's probably not something that you, that you want. So again, you're moving towards the conservative end of the spectrum. However, as we move to something like exercise, because I've actually been asked this in the past, you know, that, that I have, someone has, has commented that, that I have quite high standards of evidence for some things, but then when it comes to some exercise interventions, I seem to be kind of a bit more free flowing, you could say. And that's true because like, I'm, I'm very open to my clients doing a variety of different exercise, a variety of different types of programs, rep ranges, etc. Like if you've ever read our exercise related contact content or you've heard us discuss exercise on the podcast like i don't really care in many cases whether someone does five reps or 30 reps like yes it might make a a slight difference but i mean overall like those rep ranges will regularly feature in programs that i give to clients you know do most programs feature mostly kind of eight to 15 reps yeah probably like for most people but i'm still happy to deviate beyond that and the reality is that when it comes to exercise and things like how many reps should I do? Or what rep tempo should I use? Or, you know, should I do squats or leg press? We don't actually need loads of rigorous trials to give us answers to that. We need us, we need to know that we're in the ballpark. That's the reality. Because for most people, when it comes to exercise, the outcomes that we're measuring are chronic adaptations. They're adaptations that are associated with this person being consistent and putting in the effort consistently over years and decades, particularly as we look to health. We already know that the vast majority of people do not meet basic exercise guidelines. Therefore, if you were someone who was trying to allocate public health resources in terms of research funding, let's say, no offense, but I'm not, I would not give my funding to someone who's investigating leg extensions versus leg press. Like that might be of, of interest to me personally, but from a public health perspective, 
who cares? You know, it's, it's just not a big priority because people aren't even satisfying the basic requirements. So obviously like there's some sports science researchers listening who are like, oh, we already find it hard enough to get funding. You don't, don't need to make it harder for us. But clearly there is a, a priority there. There's a hierarchy there in terms of what, what you might want to fund and the, and the potential benefits that could be associated with that. So, so what I would say to people when it comes to deciding on exercise i think you have more freedom to use like basic reasoning and personal preferences etc than you might do with something like prescribing a medicine obviously those things like personal preference and and patient consent etc still factors into those decisions but with exercise in particular with something where adherence is a pretty large barrier and enjoyment is so incredibly important. And I don't mean enjoyment in the sense that everything needs to be fun, but at least that the person's like, yeah, you know, I I like coming in and doing these exercises. These feel better than the other exercises. So I'm going to do them. Um, I think when it comes to exercise, that, that stuff just becomes far more important. And I think, you know, even things like, let's say, the use of resistance bands uh, for something like a reverse banded squat or, or a reverse banded hack squat, let's say. Like, do we have evidence to support that that's beneficial for muscle building or strength? I wouldn't say there's very rigorous evidence. You know, in strength, you can make some cases. In, in hypertrophy, I'm like, oh, God, you know, it's hard to make the case based on rigorous evidence. However, I, I, can, I, I personally view that as being a more an area where I can be a bit more liberal because I can say to, to my clients, you know, how, give it, give it a shot there. Try to put bands on this exercise, see how it feels. And if they come back to me and say, Oh man, my chest was absolutely on fire. You know, I felt it way better than I normally do. And normally my shoulders always at me at the bottom of the bench press. And it actually wasn't when I used the bands, then I have enough evidence there from their feedback to say that this is a potentially useful intervention for this individual in this context. What you generally will not um, see me say is that, oh, you need to abandon every exercise and that's something that's uh, useful for everyone all of the time. However, you can make cases where that is the case. Um, so I think that's a good example of a type of decision that you might make that is a bit more liberal and you're not being too conservative with your decision-making because there's a potential to influence your client's experience and potentially their results. And that's particularly useful in the case of pain and injury, because often in the case of pain and injury and in a rehab context, we actually don't really have evidence to support specific exercises. There are some like rare cases, like let's say, in hamstring rehab, the Nordic hamstring curl um, has been researched extensively. However, for the vast majority of cases, like there, there's just not really evidence there to say that you should do these exercises for any pain. And, and, and for good reason, because we don't have a reason to believe that there are particular exercises that would be more or less beneficial or that you would need to prescribe. So if I have a client who's coming to me and they're they have knee pain, let's say they have a patellar tendinopathy or something like that, then I'm, I feel I have a lot of freedom in terms of my decision making. Like there's evidence obviously that points you in the direction of what you need to do, but it's a very loose recommendation. And that recommendation might be something like you should do knee extension focused exercises, but that's a very, very loose recommendation. So still within that, there's potential for being more liberal as you decide between um, leg extensions and leg presses and whether or not you use bands on that leg press. And for example, if I was in a coaching context, I might, you know, get my client, they hop on the leg press and they say, 
Gary, look, this feels fine. I'm able to do it. But at the bottom, it's really stressing my knee more than I'd like. You know, my knee's really at me. So if I add something like resistance bands in that context, then what I'm doing is I'm using my reasoning, um, my prior knowledge to modify the resistance profile of the exercise. And then the person feeds back and says, that actually feels much better because the resistance is now, it's different. I feel it feels a bit lighter at the bottom, a bit heavier at the top. And now that person can continue training through their rehab process we don't have evidence to support that, but you can still make the decision. And I think that should hopefully make it clear why there, you have to have different frameworks for decision-making depending on the issue that you're dealing with. You know, um, I'm going to be far, um, I'm going to be, feel a lot more comfortable about, you know, recommending nutrition uh, interventions to my clients who, let's say, if, if I have a client with ulcerative colitis, let's say, and they say they're just, they're with, like fat loss response on you know things like calories and macros and, and personal trainer specific stuff i'm like cool you know that's no problem we can work with that however if that client turns around and says um what diet do you think i should do to heal my ulcerative colitis that's that's an area where i have to actually step back and say not only from a scope of practice perspective but from an evidence perspective i have less freedom to actually make decisions there because I, I have to be conservative. I don't know what the potential harms are. Like, for example, if you could, you could say that maybe that individual, if they go on something like a, a carnivore diet, let's say, and they actually have, let's say, improvement in their symptoms briefly um, for a short period of time. If I do that and I'm more liberal in my approach and I don't, don't have evidence to support that, I mightn't actually be aware that there could be unknown harms. Like, for example, down the line, potential maybe because they're missing certain phytonutrients or polyphenols or fiber or whatever that that actually leads to worsening of their condition um, and more adverse outcomes in the long term higher rates of uh, things like having to have their colon removed or surgery or whatever like i can't know that in advance and if i'm using solely their symptoms as my means of, of feedback and decision making that can be actually potentially dangerous in those situations so so yeah, there, there is a spectrum here and you need to consider what evidence you need um, on the basis of the specific decision that's being made. And then you need to consider, is there, is there an asymmetry here, an asymmetry between benefits and harms? Because if it's, very, if it's more likely that there's going to be a benefit and there's very low risk of there being harm of the intervention, like using bands on a leg press, please feel free, go ahead. But if you're talking about nutrition interventions for specific medical conditions that could have adverse effects, we have to be more conservative, you know? Um, so I think that contextualizes it a bit. Yeah, hundred percent. So how do you, like, how do you as a coach or an individual, how do you navigate this entire landscape? Like, how do you, how, do that, how, can you, how do you know when to be liberal and how do you know when to be conservative? Because like, let's just take it like this. The conservative approach is probably the uh, safer approach, we'll say. Right, because you're you're doing what's always been done. You're not going against the consensus. Right now, I say safer. That's not always the case. For example, even in the exercise context, you might be just choosing exercises because those are the exercises that have always been done, and you have an individual in front of you who's just, you know, they're they're just not built to do that exercise, and it's it's almost a hundred percent likely that they're going to have harm as a result. You know, like they're doing a bench press and they get it halfway down and that's as far as they can actually go with their shoulders in a good place. And you're like, no, you must touch your chest. And they're like, duh, duh, duh. and you can see that they're just moments away from snapping all kind of rotator <laughs> muscles. Right. But you're like, well, this is the way it's always been done. Um, 
So if we take it that generally the conservative approach is a safer approach, is that where we start? Do we start with the conservative approach? And then we start looking at, all right, we have this theoretical knowledge, you know, you've read all of our articles, you're in the coach's corner, you know, you're, you're getting all that information and you, you have the theoretical knowledge or at least a lot of it, right? So you're able to make good, we'll call it evidence-based decisions, right? Um, do we then just start tweaking things? We're like, oh, we can be a little bit more liberal here and maybe a little bit more liberal here and here, but mm, we should definitely keep this pillar here as like a conservative pillar. Like we obviously don't want to change multiple things at once. Um, but also this, it, it probably makes sense to keep this as a very conservative pillar of what we're trying to achieve. Uh, I don't know, maybe we'll say it's nutrition. You're just like, well, I'm not going to just recommend some random diet when you haven't even mastered you know, getting a, an appropriate calorie diet, you know? Um, so like, how do we navigate this? Do we just stay conservative until we have reason to believe that a, a looser, more liberal approach to a certain thing is good? Or do we start with a, a, maybe a template that's conservative and then we bring in liberal stuff from the start. We're like, hmm, based on just looking at this individual, I think this exercise or this exercise or banning this or doing this and you know, having a little bit more of a, a deviation from what's always been done. Do we just start out with that? Like, how, how do we approach this? Yeah, I would say, I would say yes. I think that's a good, a good framework to work with because like, I think an example of this, a good one is, is nutrition, right? So we get someone on board and they're initially you know, they're just looking for to get their, their diet in order. And I initially say to them, okay, you know, we're going to start off with a protein recommendation that seems reasonable within the ranges we normally recommend. So let's go two grams per kilo fat, ugh, you know, let's start maybe around one gram per kilo and then let's fill the rest of your calories with carbohydrates. And then I'll give them some guidance on, you know, what foods might want to, to make up those calories and carbohydrates and proteins and fats, etc. And then maybe we review after week one and we move forward like that for a few weeks. And that's my conservative starting point because I know that those recommendations are taking care of my client's needs in the vast majority of cases. Um, and it, it's, it's a fairly, it's a diet pattern of moderation, you know, um, and there's a lot of flexibility within that. So as we move forward, then let's say over the first four weeks, what I begin to observe is that on average, this individual seems to be way overshooting the fat target and way, way undershooting the carbohydrate target. And their feedback to me is that I feel much better when my carbohydrates are a bit lower and my fat's a bit higher. It also suits my taste preferences. And because of where I'm from, the uh, cultural standards of the foods that we eat uh, aligns very much uh, with this sort of macronutrient breakdown. So in that case, I'm going to be like, okay, cool. You know, let's actually begin to move in that more um, liberal direction or freedom direction where we begin to say, all right, I'm going to give you freedom to actually, you know, create a diet structure that's more appropriate for you. And we begin to move in that direction. And the person, you know, they're at 150 grams of carbs now. And then, you know, another four weeks and they're like, I actually want to bring my carbs down lower and my fat up higher. And it's like, okay, yeah, right. We're now we're at hundred grams of carbs. And as that process continues, there comes a point where I'm like, okay, I actually need to pull this back in. I need to be a bit more conservative because what I'm seeing in this individual is that 
the vast majority of their fat intake seems to be coming from, let's say, butter and bacon fat. Um, there's very little diversity there. It's mostly saturated fat. And as I begin to look at their carbohydrate intake, they're kind of just getting a few extra grams of carbs from like sweets and stuff that they have around their workout and their fiber intake is quite low. So as I look at that, the person might come back to me and say, you know, I'm actually feeling really, really good. You know, I've felt this good in ages. Their weight loss is going really well. However, that's where I have to bring in that kind of conservative perspective and say that, look, I don't actually know 100% whether or not this is doing you harm. However, based on the evidence that we have available, it's probably not a great idea for most of your fat to be coming from saturated fat and for your diet to be really low in fiber. So, could we kind of meet somewhere halfway? So I might say to someone, look, let's try and at least get your fiber up to 30 grams a day. And could we bring that saturated fat down a bit? Just so maybe instead of some bacon uh, three evenings a week, I'd like you to have something like uh, salmon, or I'd like you to have some olive oil instead of butter or these types of things. We start to make some subtle adjustments so that we can still use the the more liberal element where the individual has had the freedom to play around with their diet and to do something that's a little bit different from my standard recommendation. But I'm also kind of coming back to those conservative pillars of what I think a good diet pattern looks like. And then we kind of meet in the middle. So that's how kind of how I would look. I would look at it. I would say we start more conservative or just general. You get more uh, specific to the individual by using their feedback in a more kind of more liberal manner but then you always have those kind of conservative pulls that you hold yourself to and that you try and pull yourself back to. Because like, I think what people need to realize is that it's almost always sexier in any domain to be that more kind of liberal individual, the individual who's willing to deviate from convention to kind of move to newer things based on something that might be useful. And that's always sexy because it's new and because it's novel. However, the, the benefit of being more conservative with the evidence that you use is that you come back to kind of what's tried and, and trusted and what's likely to be most useful. And the thing is, that's not always going to sell well. And that might even be the case for your clients. So your clients might actually say to you that, oh, but you know, I want to try out this new diet, you know, I actually enjoy this more and I'm feeling better. So that's ultimately where I think something like education becomes really, really important. And it goes back to what we discussed in the last podcast on collaborative, collaborative decision-making. If you can inform the individual why you are being more conservative, it demonstrates the fact that you actually do have concern. You've thought deeply about this. You've educated yourself on the topic. And then it's more likely that they're actually going to be willing to rein things in a bit. Um, so that's what I would say. Other examples of this would be uh, in the nutrition context, something like uh, a more IIFYM or if it fits your, your macros approach to dieting, let's say, or the extremes of flexible dieting. So like, like I said, if I give someone the initial calorie and macronutrient recommendations and they come back to me and they're hitting the targets, but their food quality is just awful, you know, so they kind of they, they hit their protein, but they do it by just throwing in a few shakes and protein bars. And their overall diet pattern is primarily um, processed foods, junk foods, hyper palatable, high calorie foods, you know, lots of sugar, lots of refined carbohydrates. Um, they're not cooking anything, um, lots of packaged foods. Like, as I look at that, I'm thinking, okay, look, you are satisfying the needs in terms of hitting your calorie and macronutrient targets. And yes, 
you are going to lose weight and move towards your body composition goal with that approach. However, I'm concerned long-term that this is actually a a recipe for disaster when it comes to adhering long-term, especially as you get leaner, things like satiety become more of a concern. Um, As you accumulate more and more years on a diet pattern like this, we might be concerned about nutrient insufficiencies. We might be concerned about adverse metabolic health effects. Um, So I don't think this is the best uh, approach for you. So again, you're starting conservative. You're saying that, okay, you know, you're giving the person freedom and flexibility, but as they take that too far and become a bit too liberal in their approach, you need to, again, be able to rein it back in, in, be able to become a bit more conservative. um, And that's where you need to take things. And one final example, just as it relates to exercise, because I said previously, that it's a good idea to, you know, be a bit, a bit more liberal with your exercise approach. However, again, it's, it's not a, you can only take that to a certain degree because let's say we're making a, a designing a program for someone. And I tell them that there's quite a bit of flexibility that they have. And, you know, we don't have that much evidence to support specific periodization models or whatever, or different programs. However, we have evidence for basic principles um, I might start someone off and right, let's say we're doing a four week block, four days per week. They've got exercises that they're doing each day, maybe one exercise per day. I give them autonomy to make their own decision. Um, and we've got rep ranges, et cetera. And they come back at the end of four weeks and they actually say, um, look, Gary, actually, you know, for the last two weeks, I decided to just change all the exercises because, you know, there's no evidence to support, like I have to do just one exercise. So I kind of just change them around each workout. And that again would kind of bring you back to my more conservative principles and saying that it's far, it's probably more likely that if we repeat exercises each week, that you're going to get more of a benefit uh, from them by gaining the skill and ensuring that we're moving past basic motor learning um, or neurological um, adaptations. So we need to kind of repeat those exercises each week. And, and look, I know you've been kind of just, randomly hitting rep targets, but I do think we should kind of maintain some sort of rep range that we work in. So again, what I'm doing there is bringing it back to a more conservative approach while still allowing for some freedom. So what I might say to that individual, if they feel they benefit from more autonomy in their programming and more flexibility and being more liberal there, I might give them broader rep range targets, maybe on a couple of exercises and maybe two exercises at the end of each workout, I give them autonomy. So it could be something like, all right, uh, autonomous bicep exercise of choice and tricep exercise of choice. Because, you know, like, what are you going to do? Like, you're going to do a bu- an easy barbell curl or a dumbbell curl. Like, they're just not that different. Whereas something like a squat and a leg press, they actually are quite different. And if you've been doing leg press for a while and you go back and do a squat, you actually kind of feel like Bambi, you know, you, you Bambi on ice kind of thing. You, you're, you're just, you're, you're not real coordinated. You don't have those adaptations. So you're only ever getting back to your baseline level of strength as opposed to actually progressing strength. So, so yeah, I think, I think that gives people a framework to think through these problems. What do you think? 100% Gary. I actually have nothing else to add. I think that effectively does cover everything. And I think people will come away from this thinking again, it's like, there's no, there is no one approach. You can definitely be safer and just follow the conservative, like what has always been done, you know? And you know, effectively use templates, but at certain points with certain individuals, you're going to have to bring in some more freedom, some more uh, allowance to deviate from that conservative thought process, you know, because as I said earlier on, a lot of the stuff, it's just convention. There's actually no evidence to suggest it to, you know, well, to suggest it. Yes. To 
fully, you know, throw your hat in and be like, this is the number one, or this is the best, or this is what we should recommend on a population wide scale. You know, like there's very little evidence for that, especially in the context of resistance training. There is a little bit more in the context of nutrition. You know, we have a little bit more robust uh, knowledge around, you know, oh, this is how much like fat we need. This is how much protein we need. However, if you've read my articles on those those topics as well, you'll realize that a lot of the times the evidence isn't actually even that strong, you know, um, or, you know, numbers seem to make sense based on, you know, we'll say proxy measures down the line, right? But we don't have a direct, like, this is the evidence that suggests this is the number, you know? Like, for example, we always use the kind of pretty conservative uh, fat recommendations of like 0.6 to one gram per kilo of body weight you know, as your fat per day, right? But if you actually try to like dig in and be like, what, like, where are we getting this from? You know, like a lot of it is somewhat mechanistic and somewhat like down the line it's like oh well if we go below 0.6 people find it hard to you know stick their diet they they find like it's not as palatable they they find like it's hard to adhere to they also notice potentially some you know endocrine stuff and in certain circumstances you know like hormonal stuff and you're just like "Hmm," like i don't have a definitive like oh is it 0.59 is it 0.6 is it actually 0.5, you know, like, and for some individuals, you know, is it actually lower? Like maybe you can get lower and you find you have no issues, you know? Um, and it's the same with like the, the omega-3 intake, you know, like we have a lot of research to suggest that omega-3s are, are good, you know, obviously you can overconsume them as well. Um, but, you know, the actual definitive number, you know, it's very hard to be like, this is the exact amount you need to be getting daily. Or again, like fat targets, you can look at weekly because you can store fat. Um, But, you know, it's very hard to dial in on very specific numbers. And we're left with like mechanistic stuff or, you know, studies that somewhat arbitrarily used uh, an amount. And now that's the amount that we have, you know, like they say, they just use like three grams of omega-3s, you know? Um, And you're just like, all right, I don't know, like, could you have gotten all the benefits that are associated with this study from two grams? Is there more if we go up to 10 grams? You know, we don't have that robust information, right? So we have to use the mechanistic stuff, some the data that some liberal person generated. Like they were like, hmm, I think these are good. This is what I'm going to go with. You know, this is, this is not included in the general recommendations, the conservative approach, but I'm going to test something out. Oh, we see benefits from this now we have a number to, to work from. That doesn't mean that it's the, the be all and end all. And as I said at the start of this, you know, a lot of the stuff is convention and you have to be willing to put your neck on the line and be a little bit more liberal in your approach sometimes, especially as a researcher uh, when you have tenure, um, you know, to be able to go like, oh yeah, like I'm actually going to test this amount. Is this better than this? You know, or there's this mechanism here. Maybe we'll actually bring in a nutrition protocol for this and, oh, it actually works or no, it didn't work. You know, like, and, and then that just becomes the conservative approach because it works, you know, like the an actual brilliant recommendation. I was thinking of it earlier. I didn't say it uh, when you were talking about medicine is there's always the the line of uh like conventional medicine uh when they discuss uh uh, functional medicine you know they're like look if it's if it works it is medicine you know like it like the if something works in a functional medicine approach like they're 
that like they have a, a protocol or whatever that just becomes medicine yeah you know and now yeah there, there may be a lag lag time or you know there might be a different uh thought process in how you navigate a situation you know like again a conventional medical practitioner might be more willing to utilize drugs i'm just you know i'm straw manning the argument here but you know they might be more willing to uh utilize drugs whereas the functional medicine doctor might be like "Mm, well let's actually look into these other things before we even think about that approach you know um so like if if it works it becomes the thing you know that becomes the conservative approach you know um although sometimes again that's like it is self-correcting over time however that doesn't mean it's self-correcting over your lifetime you know it could be like 100 years in the future um that it actually gets corrected and you're like oh right that that would have been nice to know um but uh yeah basically yeah there's a time and a place to be conservative with your approach there's a time and a place to be a little bit more liberal with your approach and there there is no right and wrong with this stuff you know it's not like politics you know like i always use the 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 politics uh lens with this in terms of people like to say they're a centrist you know but when they're actually saying they're a centrist what they really mean is they're a conservative right and the reason i say that is because their view of centrism is well, let's just keep the status quo, which is actually conservatism, you know, yeah, it's not, not, the, not necessarily like the actual political, like conservative parties or yeah, know, liberal yeah, yeah. parties, totally. but the actual approach itself, the thought process, which is what we're talking about today is a conservative thought process. So like, Oh, well, why would we change the status quo? Like, let's just, let's not have a dichotomy of this or that. Let's just keep doing what we're doing, which is actually a conservative approach you know and also in politics like people who would classify themselves as conservative don't actually have conservative approaches you know for example an easy one to uh, say and it's a more liberal belief in terms of political liberal belief and that the liberal people are more concerned about the environment right and if you think about it you're like if you're a conservative and you're not concerned about the environment what are you concerning? What are you yeah. conserving? You know, like, so even like, even though they're called conservatives, they're not actually being conservative. Right. Um, but also we have to remember that even if you are a centrist and you have that belief that you're like, Oh, I'm just being, I just want to keep the status quo. That is conservative. However, sometimes, and this applies to politics, it applies to how you approach, uh, training, nutrition, how you approach this whole thought process that we've been thinking about, sometimes that centrist approach is just as bad as one or the other approaches. And what I mean by that is like, like I always use the example, if the liberal says, like the liberal approach is, I think we should eat this log of shit and the conservative approach is, Jesus Christ, no, I'm not eating this log of shit. The, the centrist goes, oh, I ate half that log of shit. So we're all good, you know? Like that's not a good approach, right? So if you are doing like bringing a a uh, a conservative or liberal approach to your training, like don't get caught in that position where you are effectively doing the worst of both worlds. You're keeping some things conservative, which you know maybe it would be better if we were a little bit more liberal. There, you know, maybe you're just very dogmatic in terms of oh, everyone must squat, bench, and deadlift, right? And um, 
but you're more liberal in other areas, which potentially it would be better if we were more conservative. For example, you're like, yeah, of course, go uh, the super high fat carnivore diet. And um, that's great, you know? And it's like, like you, you're, you're being more liberal with your nutrition recommendations, yeah. being extremely conservative with your, uh, your training recommendations. And this doesn't necessarily lead to the best outcomes long-term. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't lead to good outcomes. That's it's very potentially that it does, you know? But we probably would have been better being a little bit more on that, we'll call it the centrist approach in terms of let's have a little bit of more liberalness in the exercise recommendations. Like this individual is clearly, you know, not really built to deadlift. Like they really struggle to get the bar off the ground. And once it's up like two inches, they're like, yeah, I actually feel great. You know? Um, so being a little bit more liberal in your recommendations there will probably be a good thing, you know? And the same with the, the nutrition, being a little bit more conservative and not saying like, oh yeah, of course, just eat as much saturated fat, eat as much uh, meat as you want, you know? It's all good, you know? Like that's, that's probably not a great generalist uh, approach. You know, again, it might be the approach you take with an individual uh, and there might be reasons to believe that, but in general, that's probably not going to lead to the best outcomes long-term, you know? So again, you have to navigate this, this liberal versus conservative thought process, but just don't fall into the position where you get the worst of both worlds, basically is what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and definitely don't just attack to your own political beliefs because oh, you don't want this to leave this podcast and be like oh well I'm conservative politically so I'm going to become super conservative with all of my recommendations or vice versa you know because very often they actually go in the opposite direction so yeah just ditch the American American politics kind of terminology for a moment but anyway the the, the one other thing I was going to say because you brought up the kind of the carnivore and the low carb examples is you can actually see really good examples of where this plays out um in the low carb and the carnivore community, like an example of this would be your man, Paul Saladino, the carnivore MD. He made a post like a number a few weeks ago, like celebrating his LDL cholesterol of like, I think it was close to like six, 600, something like that, which is like really, really, really high, <laughs> like very, very high. Like you, it's, it's not, it's, it's not it's probably not good, but his case is kind of like, he's like, you know, well, they haven't studied this in, um, populations like me you know so i'm gonna be fine and that, and that is the case of a lot of kind of uh people in the the low carb high fat kind of keto community they'll basically say that um yeah look ldl seems to be associated with um cardiovascular disease in certain populations but we actually think that it's probably wouldn't apply to us because we're lean and, and we're healthy and, and because we don't have carbs in our diet or we have low insulin, then it's not going to matter. And that very liberal belief, because basically what they're saying is they're making some sort of mechanistic hypothesis and they're running with it uh, at the expense of like potential serious harm. Because the, the like when you're talking about something like, potentially having a heart attack at, at 40 or 50, like that obviously becomes really, really important. And you need to cater your decision-making to that. And the, the, the interesting thing here is that people uh, in the general population, as they observe the discourse between people like that, let's say, and maybe the more conventional medical community, they can often end up quite confused because 
the person who is standing up, let's say, for eating a diet that is more rich in vegetables and, and fiber and et cetera, and contains carbohydrates, they're not necessarily saying that there's absolutely no possible way that the carnivore diet could improve your health. Um, but what they are saying is that based on everything that we know, it's fairly unlikely that an LDL of 600 is going to be benign. Okay, it's fairly unlikely. So if we can look at someone like that who's on a low-carb, high-fat diet and they are incre- they're eating loads of saturated fat, most of their fat from saturated fat, and their LDL is increasing, and we know that that's generally harmful in the general population, then it makes sense on a medically conservative basis to turn around and say, this probably isn't the best idea based on what we know. The reality is that we can't know everything. And you have to start thinking in terms of probabilities when you get cardiovascular disease 100%. It's a case of probability. So being more kind of conservative in your approach, you accept that, all right, you know, there's certain, based on what we already know, there's an increased probability of certain adverse events with uh, certain profiles, let's say lipid profiles. Um, and as a result, potentially certain diets. And when we make recommendations to the population, we're more likely to sit on the side of what seems to be associated with good health um, based on lots of evidence, rather than jumping to something that people who've done it for a few years feel better on, but we don't ultimately know the long-term outcomes. So, so yeah, there's very clearly a kind of a, a philosophical difference in terms of how those groups of people approach evidence. And what I would say to you is that while it can be very convincing at times when people present isolated papers that maybe make some plausible mechanisms, um, you need to be careful with that. Like, for example, sometimes carnivore proponents will make certain um, hypotheses and say that, oh, look, I know this nutrient is low on a carnivore diet, but we actually think that based on this mechanism, we might not actually need as much of that nutrient because we're carnivore. Or the LDL example, LDL mightn't matter as much because we're carnivore and people on low-carb diets, uh, they have different uh, LDL um, specific types of molecules versus people who are on a standard American diet. Um, But those mechanistic hypotheses, they're interesting and they can take you to a certain point. But if you're thinking about your own personal health or the health of your clients, I think being a little bit more conservative is, is probably generally a sound idea. Yeah. Um, I just think moving the goalpost to fit your diet pattern, is probably not a great idea. You know? Yeah, no, it's just not good. And that's exactly what most diet cults do. <laughs> yeah. Like, again, like you said, like they're like, well, like vitamin C in the carnivores. They're like, Oh, well, we actually don't need as much. And I'm like, okay, that's, perfectly fine but then you have to explain throughout history how people who ate like this got scurvy like you have to explain that if you think that if you think this then tell me explain this for example the pioneers in america you know they when when they went across uh like the oregon trail for example or uh or what was it what were those two people that explored the the west of america their name is completely gone out of my head. Anyway, the two explorers, like all their explorers with them and stuff, they were able to catch a load of animals. They were able to catch rabbits. They were able to catch bison, whatever. And because they weren't eating vegetables, they got scurvy. You know, they got a vitamin C deficiency. So they were eating basically only meat. And you look at their journals, they're like, we caught X amount of meat today. We killed this buffalo and we ate it. And 
and they were basically only eating meat because they there's like the fruits and vegetables and stuff like obviously that's a little bit harder to get in North America where they were going anyway like you might stumble across some berry trees occasionally but anyway they, they got scurvy so you have to explain that you have to be able to explain that with your diet pattern how someone in history ate like you ate or like you eat or you're suggesting people should eat and they got something that you are saying is not a concern right so we have to be able, you have to be able to explain that if that is the case you know the other one as well that they always move the goalpost on is obviously the LDL but on top of that especially with the carnivores they move the the goalpost on you know the other one that they move the goalpost on is sex hormone binding globulin right because all these carnivore people their sex hormone binding globulin goes through the fucking roof right and then they're like and their testosterone goes down and then they start making these roundabout arguments being like oh uh yeah, this is actually beneficial. Sex hormone binding globulin is associated with, you know, insulin sensitivity. And that's great. That's what we want. Right. But then you're like, okay, well, your testosterone is going down. And they're like, oh, it's because we have upregulation in receptors and we have, uh, you know, a better ability to handle this. I'm like, like, this stuff, it just, you just start creating all of these issues and then you start going, oh, well, actually, if we change the definition of this and if we go through this other maybe potential mechanism, we might be okay, you know? But I'm just like, or you could just eat normally and, and not have these issues and not have to make any of these random mechanistic things, you know? Yeah, happy days. If you feel better on this type of diet, go for it. But I probably wouldn't be pinning my hat on something that I've moved the goalposts to actually get to you know anyway we had a few technical difficulties there hopefully with the edit that i've done on it you'll all have listened to that flawlessly but gary's going to wrap up the podcast now so gary where can people find us and i believe we have an announcement to make because this is going to be coming out at roughly 5 a.m on a monday and at roughly 9 a.m on this monday something is happening Yep. So guys, for most of you who have been following along with the podcast for the last number of months, you'll know that we have been working on a project called the Coach's Corner, which is basically an educational platform designed for personal trainers. Um, Of course, it's open to anyone. If you're an interested trainee, you're more than welcome to join. Um, However, it will be catering for people who have, you know, they've got some level of knowledge already. They're working with people. And ultimately, we're going to be um, trying to apply theory um, in practice so that those individuals can go into coaching that day and actually help out their clients, you know, um, and that will also in, include a support group, um, Facebook support group to actually allow people to present their cases, you know, right, I was working with this client today, I was having this problem, what do you think we should do? And we'll be creating custom content for those types of issues. Um, so it is going to be very much applied. So if you are interested in that, guys, today is the day that we are going to be launching it. Um, for those of you on the email list, you will be receiving an email um, to let you know. And for those of you who are on the waiting list, uh, you will actually receive a, a specific discount code um, to get a discount for the first week. Um, and everyone else, you can you can sign up today. And basically what that will be is a monthly subscription. And the monthly model is effectively designed so that we're not just releasing a single product and giving you 
thousands of hours of content to just like have to peruse immediately, you know, rather what we're going to be doing is releasing a certain amount of content so that people have stuff that's available to consume immediately. And then what we'll be, what we'll be doing is each week we'll be releasing um, a number of new pieces of content so that you have a couple of hours of content per week um, while appreciating the fact that the people who are consuming the content, you personal trainers, you're also at work, you know, you're working all day. You don't have six hours a day to be studying. So we're going to be releasing it, drip feeding it out over time um, and ultimately trying to build an educational platform that supports your ability to become a better coach um, to take on more clients, help more people, and of course make more money you know um so yeah that's basically what we're going to be doing and you can sign up to that today it will be launching at 9 a.m um so you can you can sign up then and if you're interested in in following us otherwise we do obviously have our standard triage method newsletter which you can subscribe to Um, we also have a facebook group that is open access so the triage method community if you're interested in joining that uh, you can also join that on facebook for free Uh, we also have a youtube channel triage method an instagram page triage method and a facebook page triage method again so if you're interested in any of those give us a follow and if you are interested in working with us one-on-one kind of online coaching, then we do also have spaces available to work with you towards your goals. So get on board if you're interested. 100% Gary. Anyway, I have nothing else to say. Um, it's too easy. It's too easy.